0: That is a great way to enter the pulpit. Good singing this morning. Uh, Before we jump into our text, I just want to give you a reminder. We've got prayer cards for Jordan Hecox, his church planter. He was here several weeks ago and preached from the Psalms for us. And so just wanted to let you know those are out on the welcome table. And you can grab one of those and be reminded to pray for Jordan and his family as they plant in Mankato. And we're excited to partner with them through that process. So good reminders. There's some prayer requests on the back. And just a good visible thing you can stick in your Bible or wherever you will remember it. So make sure to grab one of those on your way out this morning. Well, last Sunday, we started the book of Zechariah in our journey through the last three books of the Old Testament. And we saw God calling his people back to him to return to him. And he did this a few different ways. He calls them in order so that they would avoid his wrath because he's going to judge their disobedience. He calls them back through warnings. If you remember this from the first chapter, he says, Remember your fathers and they didn't listen to me. Don't be like them, but return to me. And finally, he calls them through his word and how his word has outlasted those who have disobeyed him. And he says, Come back And return to me. Then we saw at the end of our time the first of eight visions that God gives to Zechariah. And we saw the state of the people of God who are down in a valley representing humiliation and how God promises to return to them with his presence and with his blessing. So now today we are going to pick up and finish chapter one and we will go all the way through chapter two. And I just want to make a comment before we get into the text today about how we can benefit from some of these maybe less common passages of Scripture. Sometimes what we tend to do when we read the Bible is to look for an immediate application. What does this have to do with me? How can I apply this to my life? And that's good But that's not the only reason we should read the Bible. We read the Bible not only to understand what our responsibility is, but to understand who God is and how he has dealt with his people and how he has showed his faithfulness and his attributes. So one of the things that we can do as you come across these less known, lesser familiar passages in your Bible, rather than skimming over them or thinking, okay, maybe I'll just balance out the scales when I get to the New Testament and I really will understand and I'll kind of get with that. You can look for not only what it has to do with you, but I want to encourage you to look for what God is doing. What are you learning about God? What are you learning about his ways, his attributes, his character, his faithfulness? Those are the things, brothers and sisters, that are going to carry you through whatever you're going through. The Bible does not always speak to every specific instance that you will go through in your life, but it gives us principles. It gives us ways of thinking about God and ways of observing his works so that no matter what it is, no matter what the situation, you can learn about God's love for his people. You can learn about his faithfulness, his promise-keeping And in that way, we can be greatly encouraged, even if you cannot immediately apply the text to your life. You get what I'm saying here? Now, when we come together on Sundays, we're going to unpack, Lord willing, what these texts mean and get down to the details and the applications. That's my job as your pastor. But if you come up against these texts on your own and you're reading and you're discouraged because you don't get it, you don't understand it, I'm just saying, don't let that stop you. Don't let that slow you down. Rather, look for what God is doing and be encouraged at the track record of God's faithfulness. It is perfect. And he always does what is right. So I just wanted to encourage you with that because I know, because this has happened to me, as you're reading through your Bible, you come across some of these things and you go, I know it's in God's word, so it must be good for us. I just don't know what to do with it. That's okay. Study, learn, try to understand, but also realize that there are things that you can learn about God as you read through some of these passages. So that's my encouragement as we get going for today. So now we're going to take the text, the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, probably in the same way as it's laid out in your Bible. So we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, and then we will break chapter 2 into two different sections. But before we do that, I want to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me, and we'll ask for the Lord's help. Father, we do give you thanks for the preservation of your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have free and easy access to the Bible. And Father, we invite you here by your spirit this morning to work through your word and in the hearts of your people. You do not need our permission. We are not allowing you here, but rather we ask Lord, as the posture of our heart is to humble ourselves before you and ask that you would teach us, that you would show us what you have from your word and that we would learn not only what our responsibility is here, what you are telling us, but that we would learn of you and of your character and about your truth. So Father, come, be our teacher this morning, give grace in the preaching and grace in the hearing. And above all, we ask that your gospel and your son would be magnified this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I will invite you to open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. And we will read the last few verses here, starting in verse 18. So Zechariah chapter 1, starting in verse 18. <clears throat> And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these, referring to the craftsmen, have come to terrify them. To cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Now in the book of Zechariah, when we read things like, I lifted my eyes and saw, that indicates to us that we're in a new vision. So remember I said last week that these eight visions happen all on the same night but they are separated, they are categorized. And when we read, I lifted my eyes, that means we're in a new vision, we're in something new is being told or something new is being seen. And in this second vision, Zechariah sees four horns. Now this is animal horns, this isn't like trombone-type horns. That would be strange language. <clears throat> but this is animal horns, okay? So this is what he's seeing. And the angel, who is kind of his virtual tour guide, on these visions, explains to him what they are. So he asks, what are these horns doing? And the angel says, these are the four horns that have scattered Judah. Now, in the ancient Near East, in Israel, the horns of an animal were the measure of its power, okay, of its significance, of its strength. This was a metaphor, this was figurative language to describe the amount of power or military or political might that a nation had. And I think we can understand this. When we go out hunting, we're not trying to beg that spike buck. We want the big one. We want the antlers that are going to look great on our wall. The six by six bull is what we're after. Or, in cattle language, longhorns are more valuable. They have these great horns on the animal that signifies, this is a, this is a significant animal, This is a big, strong thing. Okay, so just as in the animal world, horns were a measure of significance and strength, so in the political or military world, this was a way of describing the strength of a nation. The fact that there were four horns in this vision is significant in the sense that it is meant to tell us that it was coming from every direction. So four four corners of the earth, four points of a compass, that kind of a thing. So the, a lot of people have tried to figure out, well, which exactly were the nations, these four nations to the north, south, east, west? That's not really the point. The language is more inclusive or encompassing to tell us that from every direction, the people of God had been surrounded, provoked, scattered, from all directions, this was not just one thing that they were dealing with, but there was four from all directions that had scattered the people of God, and these strong nations, these strength that 's represented by the horn, had risen up and scattered Judah all across the map, as it were. But because God is jealous for his people, and we saw last week that he is angry with these nations who have scattered his people. He promises and tells Zechariah that he is going to override the strength of these horns. He's going to override the strength of the nations that had scattered them. And this is the first of two reversals that we're going to see in our text this morning. This first one being that the nations scattered God's people, well now God is going to scatter them. What you did to my people, I now do to you. We're going to see that again when we get into chapter 2. And how is God going to overthrow the power of these nations, these strong nations that had risen up and scattered the people of God? How is he going to do this? Look at verse 20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And when I read verse 21, I, I just get a little bit of a hint of doubt maybe, or skepticism in Zechariah's voice. He's like, uh, what are these going to do? So here's the picture. Political and military might, weapons of warfare, strength, dominance, had scattered the people of Israel, and in response to this, God says, don't worry about it, I've raised up a craftsman? Doesn't this seem a little bit strange to you? Like, why wouldn't God have raised up a warrior, a king, someone who can go after these nations and dominate them in the way that they deserved? This is strange language, and I thought about this a lot this week because it just seemed to be, craftsmen are not military people. And I thought, what are they going to do, make a scrapbook and terrify the nations with that? (laughs) This is weird, right? And we got to figure out what's going on. So I came up with three Reasons why I think God uses the language of craftsmen rather than might and warrior and soldier language. So, see if you can track with this. This is what I'm thinking is going on. First reason why God uses this language is because craftsmen often work slowly and methodically to complete their work. And so, God at times works. From our perspective, slowly and methodically to bring about his purpose. Soldiers, battles, uh, conquest is quick, it's decisive, it just happens and you know what happened. But God is not in a rush. He is not reactionary in the sense that you and I are. He doesn't look at something and go, oh no, what am I going to do with that? He absolutely knows what he is doing. And so just like a craftsman is patient and works his plan all the way through God, is patient and he will act not a moment too soon, but at exactly the right time to accomplish his will. Second reason, I think, for using this kind of language is that oftentimes the goal or the end result, the purpose of a craftsman is not made known until he is done with the work. Have you ever seen someone doing like uh, chainsaw sculpting or ice sculpting? They start with a big block. And as they work, it's really difficult to tell what it's going to be until they get done. And they're cutting, and they're chopping, and they're picking, and the chisel goes, and all this kind of stuff. And then, once they're finally done, you go, oh, that's what's going on. Similarly, we read in the Bible that God's ways are not our ways. And so, as his people observe his works and they observe his timing, and they observe what he is doing, it oftentimes is like, we don't get it. We don't get it. But when it's done, when God's purposes come to pass, it is obvious, oh, that's why this happened here. That's why God did this at this time. That is how a craftsman works. I think there's some correlations there between how God works. Now, the third reason, and I've already alluded to this, is because craftsmen are not known as strong, mighty, soldier-type people. These are men with specialized skills who quietly work and do what they ought to do. So to answer the question, why didn't God raise up military might to deal with the military-like aggression that had happened against the people of God? I'm saying that he chooses unconventional methods. To accomplish his will. How many times have we seen in the scriptures that God routinely uses underdogs, lesser known, weak people to accomplish his purpose? And the reason he does this is because, and we're going to see this as we get a little bit later in the book of Zechariah, that it is not by might, it is not by power, but by the Spirit of God that he accomplishes his will. So if God had raised up a mighty soldier, a Goliath-type person, and sent him out to these enemies, everyone could have looked at that and gone, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty strong dude, and he's pretty good at warfare, so of course this would happen. But by God using unconventional means, weak means to accomplish his purposes, it magnifies his strength rather than the strength of men. And I just want to say, as a quick parenthesis, for all of us, Who feel weak and inadequate. That does not disqualify you for being used by God. Because God routinely chooses. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. The things that are weak in the world to shame the strong. So don't be discouraged. If you feel weak and inadequate and unqualified. God uses that. So that you don't have a reason to boast and that his glory is magnified. Now he's going to do this to punish the nations using these unconventional methods and this is where we see this reversal that I was talking about a moment ago. The same calamity that these people brought upon the nation of Israel and Judah and the people of God, God is going to bring upon them. It's a reversal. It's irony, in a sense. God says, okay, you messed with my people. No, I'm going to do the same thing to you. And I'm going to do it in a way that makes you look foolish. Nobody wants to get beat by the craftsman. But that's how God is going to accomplish his purpose. Now, let's keep moving. Open your Bibles again, or if you still have them open, into chapter 2. And let's read chapter 2 together, read the whole thing, it's only 13 verses, and then we'll do what we did last week, and we'll make some comments about the figurative language that's being used, and we'll get to the bottom of this vision. So chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem and to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up! Up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell with you in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself. From his holy dwelling. In the first five verses of this chapter, Zechariah sees a young man with a measuring line, a tool for measuring spatial dimensions. And he says that he is going to measure the dimensions of the city of Jerusalem. Now, we're not told who this young man is, and I don't think that's the main point, anyways. But the point of a measuring line is to determine boundaries. You measure something to see. How big it is? How far does it go? How much can we fit inside of this thing? And we are told that he is going to measure the city likely because the Lord had said, okay, I'm coming back. I'm going to dwell with you in the city. And this young man is going to say, okay, God's coming back. How big of a space do we need to hold God? What is going to be the dwelling place of God and how big this is? However, before he can get there, another angel comes down into this vision And tells the angel who's been talking to Zechariah to go and stop that young man and say, hold on, give him a message for me. He's going to measure out the city. He shouldn't do that. Why? What's the message that this other angel brings? The message, in summary, is that there is no city, there is no four walls that can contain the glory and the presence of Almighty God. And I don't think that we should view this young man with the measuring line as some kind of wicked, you know, I'm trying to limit God as he's just excited about what's going on and he wants to measure this out and see where is God going to dwell and God says, hang on, there is no place that can contain all that I am when I return to dwell with my people. Jerusalem, when God returns to it to make his dwelling place with his people will be a city without walls, we are told. Now walls, of course, are the primary and main means of defense against enemy attacks. It is what makes a city secure. And a city's permanence, its establishment is measured by the height and the thickness and the length of the walls that protect it. Think of Jericho. As we look back in the Old Testament, it was the place to be. In Canaan, because of its walls. It was so fortified and thick. Even in the stories that we read, this is representative. Think of Helm's Deep in the two towers. Never been breached because the walls were so thick and tall and broad. So, walls are representative of defense. So, the message that Zechariah hears is that God's coming back and there's going to be no walls, which would have probably kind of freaked him out because he's like, well, where's the defense? I mean, think about all that had happened over these past years. They had returned, but there had been hostility against the people. We saw this when we looked at the book of Haggai. Samaria, for example, was kind of rattling their sabers to the north and saying, (laughs) we better not let this stand. They're going to gain power. They're going to gain might. So there was all these, these concerns for safety and security, especially having just come back from captivity. They had just been displaced. They had been mobile, and now they're looking for permanence, And God says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to dwell with you, but there isn't going to be any walls. It's kind of a strange message for a people who are seeking security. But God continues. And he says in our text that he himself will be the protection for his people. And he does this by displaying his power in this wall of fire. Now, this should be pretty familiar language if we've read our Old Testament And we remember that when the people of God came out of Egypt, when the exodus happens, God lets them know he's with them. He reveals his presence to them by what? The pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. But fire is what we're going with here, right? So this is familiar language to the people to say, okay, the presence of God at times has been represented to us as fire. So God says, yes, I'm going to return to you. And so great will be my glory and so great will be the number of the redeemed gathered that there's not going to be any walls in the city. It will just be wide open. But that does not mean vulnerability because God himself will be the protection, the boundary, the separation that his people need to establish permanence. And not only will this city be full of people. I think this is very interesting. What does it say in our text? That will be full of people and livestock. Why is that an important detail to include in the vision? Well, do you remember that the people had been really struggling with producing anything? Crops, livestock, everything they worked at, it just wasn't really working out for them up at this point. So when God says, I'm going to return with my presence, and not only will the people be gathered there, but there's going to be commerce There's going to be trade, there's going to be wealth and blessing brought back to my people because I return to them, not in judgment. We saw that last week. But God returns to his people in mercy, and the result of his presence coming back to the people will be his blessing, not only on them, but on the work of their hands. We saw in the book of Haggai how the people, because of their sin, had been fruitless in a number of ways. But God says here, now I'm going to come back to you and I will bless not only you as a people, but I will bless the work of your hands. Now, in this last section of chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 6 to 13, we're still in the same vision. Okay, all of chapter 2 is the same vision. God issues two calls to his people. He calls them to escape and he calls them to rejoice. We'll start in verse 6. We're back to Kind of first-person language. This isn't uh, the same as it was. You can see the quotations that end in verse 5. I think that's right. So now from verse 6 to the end of the chapter, God is telling Zechariah what he wants him to declare to the people. Okay, does that make sense? Tracking where we're at? Now the message in verses 6 through 13 is not directed at the people who have already returned from exile. There was a great number, I think, what did we say, 47,000, somewhere around there, who had returned already to Jerusalem. But this message, this call to come back and to rejoice and to escape, is given not to the people there, but to the people who are still abroad. The people of God who are still scattered, who had not yet returned to the safety and security of Zion. We can see this in verse 7 where it says, Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. That's just a way to say the people of Babylon or in Babylon. So they're still there. They're still abroad in many senses. Zion, being another name for Jerusalem, the city of God, is also sometimes used in the Old Testament as a reference to the people of God. But in this case, I think we're right to see it as the place, Jerusalem, the city of God. This is not just the people in general, but the city specifically. And don't miss this. In, look at verse 6 with me again. God calls his people to escape, and then he says that he is the one who had scattered them. He did that. Look at verse 6. Up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven declares the Lord. Wait a minute. Didn't we just see in chapter 1 that these nations around Israel had lifted up their horns and had scattered the people and to such a degree that God is angry with them and will punish them and judge them for that scattering. So what's going on here? Did God scatter His people or did the nations scatter His people? And of course, the answer to that is both. Yes, God uses human agency, oftentimes to accomplish His purposes. If you remember... God allowed judgment on his people, punishment on his people for not listening to his voice, for not obeying his word, and he gives them over to the covenant consequences of their disobedience, and Babylon comes in and takes them. So, did the nations scatter Judah? Yes. And did God scatter Judah? Yes. I'm not going to take the time to read this, but I want you to write down in your margin or on your notes, Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10 gives us a very similar circumstance. It's a wonderful illustration of the sovereign work of God as he uses human means to accomplish his ends. Just a really quick overview. In Isaiah 10, it's talking about the king of Assyria and God brings punishment on his people through the king of Assyria, but the king of Assyria doesn't know that he's serving God. He's just doing what is in his heart to do, which is to conquer, to overcome, to persecute, do all the wicked things. But God calls him the rod of judgment in my hand. You want to talk about what sovereignty means? Read Isaiah 10. And I'm just saying something very similar is going on in Zechariah 1 and 2. With God using the nations around Israel to accomplish his purpose and to scatter them as a punishment for their disobedience. So read that text and compare it to this, and I think you'll be helped as we try to make sense of what's going on. Now moving on in our text, we see this second great reversal. So the first one was the people who scattered Israel are going to be scattered. And now in verses 8 and 9 God says that the nations who plundered Israel are going to themselves be plundered. Okay, so you see this reversal of what has happened, or God reversing the effects of what they've done to his people. And again, just as we saw in the book of Haggai, God will move, he will act to cause this to happen. This is all happening under the control, under the supervision, and even in the power of God Almighty. And Zechariah adds in verse 9, and also in verse 11, that when this happens, when the Lord, and this is a great picture, when the Lord shakes his hand over the nations and causes them to be plundered, that will be a sign of the legitimacy of Zechariah's ministry. <clears throat> Look at verse 9. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, or verse 11, in that day, Uh, they shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The way that the people of God knew if a prophet was legitimate was if the things that he spoke of came to pass. This is how God even said that you would recognize who is a true prophet. And so Zechariah is told, tell the people this, Tell them to watch what happens because that will be a sign that you ought to be trusted, you are my mouthpiece, you are my servant. So Zechariah adds and is told to add this detail. Now the second call that God issues his people, so first one is to escape, get out of the land because I'm bringing judgment upon those nations, so come back to Zion, find refuge in me. The second call is for them to rejoice and we can see this in verse 10. Read along with me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst. What is it that causes the people of God to worship God? In this case, and I think it's the same as it always has been, is right now, and forever will be, that it is the presence of God with his people That is the cause or the ground of their rejoicing. That's what verse 10 says. Sing and rejoice for I come and will dwell in your midst. Despite this 70 years of being exiled and journeying back and trying to reestablish temple worship and getting the city back on track and all of these things and in the seeming silence of God at times, He promises His people that He will return to them to dwell in their midst. And the the coming of the Lord not only should produce worship, they should not only rejoice, but it has this kind of magnetic property. You see that in the text? As we read that when this happens, many nations will join themselves to the Lord and become His people. And I think in many ways this is a foreshadowing, a foretelling of what is going to happen in the age of the apostles. When this not just that God comes and has a desire for his people for ethnic Israel but for all the nations and this has been the plan of God from the beginning. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power to me. Catch that little phrase, according to the eternal purpose. God's plan has always been from before the foundation of the world to redeem for himself a diverse people. It's like we read in the book of Revelation. Every language, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And God is foreshadowing here. He is telling what is going to happen, that there will come a time When salvation is not only for ethnic, tribal Israel, but it is for the nations. And when this happens, when God returns with his presence and worship is produced in his people, many nations will join themselves to the Lord. This is the hope of the nations, but let's make it more specific. This is the hope for you and I. Not many of us are ethnically Jewish So what is our hope of being united to this almighty, omniscient creator God? It is that in his wisdom, as Paul just said in Ephesians 3, the gospel went to the Gentiles. It's you and me. So this isn't just some removed, abstract hope that we read about in the Old Testament. This is your hope for coming into the blessing of the people of God. Hope for the nations, hope for you and I. Now next week, we're going to look at chapter 3. And I want to encourage you to read this as we come up. It's a short chapter, I think it's only 10 verses. But this is one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament of justification by faith. And wouldn't you know it, it lands on Reformation Sunday. The whole theme of the Reformation was, how is a person justified? So providential timing So read that ahead of time, that's where we're going next Sunday. But for today, I want to leave you with an encouragement, something that you can hold on to as we've looked at these texts together. Now in Zechariah 2.10, as we just saw, the people are called to rejoice and to worship God because of the redemption and the rescue that he has provided for them and because of the promise of the return of his presence. God is saying, this should produce in you rejoicing, And I was just thinking about this, and I want to leave you with this. If if these people of God, living 500-ish years before the coming of Christ, before the coming of the Holy Spirit as we experience him now, before access to the completed canon of Scripture in the finalization of all the word of God, if they were called to look at the works of God and observe His redemption and worship Him for it, you know where I'm going here? How much more should you and I, recipients of the gospel, indwelt by the Spirit of God, access to the word of God, how much more should you and I rejoice and praise God for the great salvation that He has accomplished for us? It's why He saved you. God did not just save you so that you can have hope and confidence in your own and kind of say, okay, my mind's at peace, whatever. That's great. That's a side effect. The reason God saved you is that you'd worship Him, that you would praise Him, and that your worship would be so contagious. That everyone that you bump into would say, what is your deal? And you say, well, I got a great God. You know what he did for me? And you tell him. So just as these people were called to worship God, Grace Bible Church, I am calling you, observe the work of God and rejoice. Great and mighty. Remember the song of Moses? Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? So hang on to this. Worship the Lord. Bring praise to his name because of what he has done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Thank you for stirring in our hearts through your spirit. Thank you for prompting us to not always be silent, but to sing your praise, to live lives of worship in response to what that you have done. And Father, just as we see the example here in Zechariah 2 of your people being called to rejoice and to praise you because of your works, we ask that you would give us the same call. Lord, make it known to us That our delight and our responsibility is to worship you because of who you are, because of your great works, and because of your demonstrations of faithfulness. So Father, thank you. Thank you for being a God who can be trusted. Thank you for being a God who is perfect in all of your ways. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would grow closer to you and that our worship, not just singing and, and corporate, but our whole life, Our whole way of living would be in response to your goodness. So Father, do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.